All right, welcome back to the Corinthians seminar. We're moving on to 1 Corinthians 14 now. And as we do that, as we transition to chapter 14, uh, I think there are a few comments that I really want to start off with. Um, the first is, um, in this chapter, Paul is going to mostly contrast, compare and contrast, uh, speaking in tongues with prophecy. So we just have to acknowledge the fact that it seems like the context here is people were being out of order with tongues. And so the negative things or the seemingly negative comments that Paul makes about tongues have to fit in that context. And we're going to see, too, that Paul makes positive statements about tongues. Um, and that's what makes sense in the context. He's trying to properly define tongues. He's not trying to get rid of tongues. Um, so we're trying to unpack what it means to be uh, a church that allows for prophecy in tongues and other things. Um, and what we're going to see very early on is that Paul is going to elevate prophecy. He's going to say that the community should all seek to prophesy, that we should, um, at the end of the chapter, he's going to say, let's not forbid tongues. Okay, so on one hand, he, he says we should actively be seeking prophecy. We should be pursuing prophecy uh, with an, an earnest desire, okay? On the other hand, we have a commandment to allow tongues. You know, don't forbid tongues, which is basically the same as saying we should allow for tongues. So as we go through this, there's going to be a couple of things that we're going to be noticing. Um, we're going to be noticing how Paul defines prophecy, how he defines tongues. He's going to, he's going to put down some barriers, some landmarks for us in terms of both tongues and prophecy. But I think from a high level, just thinking about what our worship services should look like, I think the, one of the big takeaways we're going to see in chapter 14 here is that we should be heavy on prophecy and light on tongues. Um, and we're going to see that again and again and again and again. Heavy on prophecy, light on tongues, even with interpretation. Tongues with interpretation is not equivalent to prophecy, according to Paul. And um, that's why he's going to strongly, strongly, strongly emphasize prophecy. Prophecy. Another thing that we're going to pay attention to is exactly how tongues and prophecies uh, are defined and the characteristics that Paul gives us. And what we're going to see, which is, I think, going to be fascinating for people, new for people, is that prophecy is uh, strictly a message from God, which I think we all are pretty familiar with. That's probably normal for us. But what we're going to see is that tongues is defined over and over again as prayer and praise, and it's to God. That's the direction that it goes. It's, it's designed to go uh, speech towards God. So it's not, in other words, a message from God. And so when we interpret tongues, it should be an interpreted prayer, it should be interpreted praise. Um, so we're going to track this. I want you to pay attention to this as we go through 1 Corinthians 14, and then I will sum things up uh, as we get to the halfway point in this particular teaching. So, verse 1 says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. So, we are commanded here to pursue love, pursue, as the ESV says, spiritual gifts. Now, it is interesting that the word here is not uh, charismata, which is the normal word for gifts. 
it is the word pneumatikos, uh, which is the same word used in t chapter 12, uh, verse 1. Um, so I don't know what to do with that. Some, some people say that, um, you know, the difference in word means a lot. In the context, he's talking about charismata. So I think it's more likely that he's trying to use this other word in a cheeky way to teach them sort of about the same thing. It's like when we, we teach something and we use one word and then we use another word to make the same point. Just because we use a different word doesn't mean we're talking about something different. So in that sense, I think that the word gifts here in the ESV is probably right. But, you know, look, it's open for debate. Um, it's likely meant to be synonymous here. Uh, but, but the point is, regardless of what we think about how to interpret pneumatikos exactly, uh, the point is we're going to be pursuing the things of the Spirit, especially prophecy. Especially prophecy. Paul's going to highlight this throughout, throughout the whole chapter 14, but he's going to lower tongues in the minds of the Corinthian believers because it held an excessively high place in their view of gifts. He's going to elevate prophecy. He's going to put them in the right context. Because for Paul, the greater gifts in the assembly are gifts that are intelligible. That's the whole point of his whole argument. Is the, the gifts that are intelligible to all are the gifts that are preferred in a meeting. So, as we will see, a critical aspect of tongues is that the person speaking the tongue does not know what is being said. No one else in the congregation understands what is being said in a, in a normal context. Pentecost was one uh, you know, exception to that rule. So the time that we spend in tongues, whenever someone is speaking in tongues in an assembled meeting, as we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna see this as this plays out, is time where no one is edified in their mind. None of the people present, even the person speaking in tongues, is not edified in their mind the only person being edified during that time in tongues is the person speaking in tongues is edified spiritually. That's it. And so for Paul, you've got a way, you know, if there are 20 people in the room, one person being edified spiritually versus prophecy, 20 people being edified through their mind and therefore also spiritually. So that's the comparison he's going to be making throughout this whole chapter. Verse 2 says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. So speaking in tongues is defined as speaking to God. One who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. This classifies tongues in the category of prayer and praise. And that's the language that he uses in the rest of 1 Corinthians 14. I also want to point out this is absolutely consistent with the biblical treatment of tongues. If you want to see two of the three occurrences in the book of Acts, both of which give a little more detail about the content of tongues, go to Acts 2.11 and Acts 10.46. And they will tell you more about what tongues is. It is always addressed to God. It's always prayer or praise. I've only found one or possibly two verses in the Bible that might seem like it says otherwise. Okay, It's verses 5 and 6 here in 1 Corinthians 14, which we'll get to shortly. And I think there's better explanations for both those verses. This is what Fee says about tongues. Quote, although it is quite common in Pentecostal groups to refer to a message in tongues, 
There seems to be no evidence in Paul for such terminology. In this passage, the only one of its kind in the Pauline corpus, the tongue speaker is never perceived as addressing fellow believers but God. And he cites verses 13 and 14 and verse 28. Meaning, therefore, that Paul understands the phenomenon to be prayer, uh, to, to, to understands the phenomenon basically to be prayer and praise, end quote. One thing you could do is you could um, keep a tally of every time it describes exactly what speaking in tongues is and determine if it's prayer or praise or if it's something else. Keep a, keep a running tally. We'll talk about this at the end. Another important feature of tongues is that the person speaking does not understand the language either. Now, this is made clear by the fact that the person speaking in tongues must pray to interpret. That's verse 13. If, if the tongue was an inspired utterance that the person immediately understood somehow miraculously or something, I don't know exactly how that would work, but how would they, why would they have to pray to interpret? Why would their mind be unfruitful while praying in tongues, as it talks about in, in verse 14? So it's very clear here, despite some of what the cessationists have said about tongues, um, the person speaking in tongues does not understand what they're saying. That is absolutely clear. It's unintelligible to them and generally unintelligible to the people around them. Now in verse 3, we're going to move to prophecy. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So now Paul's going to contrast tongues with prophecy. And Paul's clear point is that prophecy encourages the body of believers present in the meeting. Why? Because of a couple things. The main thing is the message is being brought forth in the language of the people present, completely in that language. Notice also that the direction of the message is given as to the people. The message is the opposite direction from tongues. Tongues was to God. Prophecy is to people. Verse 4. The one who speaks in a tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, as Paul later explains in verses 14 and 15, we'll get there in a little bit, there is a spiritual edification that can take place apart from our rational frontal lobe, our, our brains. There is an edification that happens when we speak in tongues that is spiritual, that is not mental, that does not, um, is not intelligible to our brains. So when someone speaks in tongues in a meeting, they personally get that spiritual edification, even if they don't understand what they're saying, which they don't. But since the individual speaking in tongues does not know the language, and normally the rest of the congregation does not know that language, literally no one, even the person speaking, is edified in their minds when someone speaks in tongues in a meeting. So for that 15 or 20 seconds, 30 seconds, however long it is, the only edification taking place is that individual's spiritual edification. This is something to remember going forward. On the other hand, the one who prophesies edifies everyone the whole time. No time is quote-unquote wasted. Okay. Verse 5. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets, so the church may be built up. Now, starting here in verse 5, there are some clauses that require us to understand that Paul has more in mind than simply the Christian meeting. 
Uh, later in the same chapter, Paul will say that he would rather speak five intelligible words in a meeting than 10,000 words in, a, in tongues that no one understands. That's in verse 19, which we will get to in this teaching. So we've got to understand Paul's wish in light of that fact. We have to understand that when he talks about wanting us to speak in tongues, he's not saying necessarily in a meeting. He's saying generally he wants people to speak in tongues. And we're going to find out more and more that he's referring to their private prayer life for that. That's where tongues really shines even more than in a meeting. Now, I want to talk a little bit about this language. I want you all to speak in tongues. Uh, some have read this wish as an absolute. Everyone should speak in tongues. I think that's a possible reading. I'm not going to say that it's impossible, but I also want to provide some other evidence that sort of challenges that. Uh, first, Paul has already said that not all Christians will speak in tongues. That's chapter 12, verse 30. He says, do all speak in tongues? The answer is no, they're not going to. So he knows that he, in the context here, he knows functionally speaking, not everyone's going to do it. Uh, either in the church or in their private prayer life. Not everyone's going to do it. So it may be a little bit harsh um, to say that he would literally want everyone to do something when he knows that not everyone's going to do it. It's still possible that he still wants them to do it, even if they're not going to do it. I'm not saying it's impossible. But I think there's another, another thing that we can, we can notice. And that is that in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, he uses the exact same construction to say, I wish that all were as I myself am. And the context is talking about celibacy. And he goes on to say that some people get married. And if you're married, you have to take care of your wife and your husband. And you got to take care of your children if you have children. And you don't have as much time for prayer and for ministry. And so that's in the context of saying, like, I wish everyone was like I am. I wish everyone was celibate. Well, does he literally wish that everyone in the Christian church was celibate? No. He's saying that some people are gifted in that way. They're gifted in that they can be celibate. And that that can lead them to live a life that is more gospel-focused than those who are not celibate, those who are married, and those who do have children. That's what he's saying. So it's not everyone, it's not like a universal wish that he's making in 1 Corinthians 7, 7. And so, you know, if we're not going to interpret that one as an absolute wish, then I think we can do the same thing here. It's not necessarily an absolute wish. It's a generally good thing that he's suggesting. It's a generally good thing. He's suggesting speaking tongues is a good thing. But even more than that, prophecy. So um, in light of all that, um, maybe we could translate this phrase, it's a good thing to speak in tongues in your private prayer life. You know, that's, that's what he's really trying to get at when he says, now I want you all to speak in tongues. But even more than tongues, Paul wants us to pursue prophecy. Why? Because again, speaking in a language, speaking in tongues only benefits one person in their spirit while it's going on, while prophecy benefits the whole assembly in mind and therefore in spirit. One person versus the whole assembly until you get to the interpretation and the interpretation benefits the assembly in similar ways. So the way to redeem tongues then in a meeting is to interpret them. So then at least the assembly can understand the interpretation and be edified. Now this last phrase in verse five has been used by some to say that Interpretation of tongues is equivalent to prophecy in a meeting. But that is not what Paul says here, and we've got to be very careful about that. 
He says, the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. He says nothing here that it's equivalent to prophecy. He's saying that it becomes as intelligible as prophecy when someone interprets it. Because Paul has already defined tongues as talking to God. That was like two or three verses ago. He's defined tongues as talking to God. He's defined prophecy as talking to people. The direction has already been established. And there's nothing in this verse that reverses that at all. It just says that we can be built up. We can be built up. So, again, this doesn't, this doesn't uh, change that direction. Fee says this, quote, This does not imply that such a tongue is to be understood as directed toward the community, but that what the person has been speaking to God has now been made intelligible so that others may benefit from the Spirit's, spirit's utterance, end quote. Let's move to verse 6. This is the other verse I was telling you that some people have, um, you know, might think makes tongues as a message to the body of people, but I think we'll understand that's not what, what it's saying here. <clears throat> verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? How will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So this is the other verse that some, that, you know, some may use to say, well, tongues, it could be revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. It's not just uh, prayer or praise. I don't think that that's the best way to read this. I think Paul is not uh, saying that interpreting tongues could be revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. He is contrasting uninterpreted tongues with these other things. And he's using the same words that he's used before in 1 Corinthians 12 to refer to other gifts, charismata. Specifically, he has used knowledge, prophecy, and teaching before in chapter 12 in the two different sections, the early section and the later section. So I don't think that the best way to interpret that would be that if you interpret a tongue, it could be revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. I don't think that's right at all. I think the point that he's making is that um, there's no benefit to tongues unless it is interpreted, just like a revelation comes in the knowledge of the people present, just like knowledge comes in the, knowledge, in the language of the people present or prophecy or teaching. So the point I think that Paul is making is, is that intelligible, understandable utterances in a church are better than speaking in tongues because speaking in tongues is unintelligible. That's the point he's trying to make. He hammers this home in the next five verses, which we'll read together, verses 7 to 11. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none was without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So in this paragraph, Paul builds on an analogy to keep the contrast going between prophecy and tongues. Now, verse 9 assumes that speaking in tongues will generally be in a language that is not understood by those present. It says, if you utter speech that is not intelligible. So Paul is assuming 
unlike what some of the um, cessationists say, Paul's assuming that the language is unintelligible to everyone else. Um, so this bucks against several, you know, Pentecostal beliefs, like the idea that you could use tongues for um, outreach, like if you go to a foreign mission field, uh, that that would be the primary way that you would communicate was through like miraculously getting like uh, Swahili or something like that. No, that's, I mean, that has happened. It, 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 just like Pentecost, it can happen, but that is generally not what tongues is. It's generally not what tongues is. And so since that's the case, it does not benefit the people assembled at all. Put positively, if we want to put this in a positive framework, speech in the meeting should benefit everyone. Whatever is spoken should be intelligible to everyone. I want to point out, too, that verses 10 and 11 about many different languages in the world and being a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker being a foreigner to you, this would make this makes so much more sense in a cosmopolitan ancient setting like Corinth, where you could go to the Agora, the marketplace. In day-to-day -day Corinth, many languages were spoken at that marketplace. Um, so this is something that would have connected easily for them. In our modern American uh context you know we just hear like spanish and a lot of us like know a little couple words here and there in spanish so if someone's speaking spanish around us we can sort of pick it up a little bit of what they're saying and some of some of the people in our church are fluent in spanish and will understand everything and could translate it for us um so anyway this whole analogy about unintelligible speech it makes uh, it makes even more sense in an ancient corinthian context than it does for us today although we can still get the point the point is, is that foreign speech makes the other person a foreigner and someone that cannot be understood. So this, Paul is saying, is like what happens when someone speaks in tongues in a meeting without interpretation. It's like, I become a foreigner to you, you become a foreigner to me. It's very ostracizing. It's, um, it's putting up walls, a barrier for people. Verse 12. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. So Paul thinks that seeking manifestations, seeking gifts of the Spirit, is a good thing. He continually says that it's a good thing. Seeking after prophecy specifically, he said, is a good thing. The point of all these things, the point of all the gifts and manifestations, is to excel in building up the church. That's what he, uh, that's the main goal, that's the main highlighted uh, thesis of this chapter is, is to build up the church. So, moving on to verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Uh, this is where Paul's analogies and comparisons find their conclusion. They find their, their end here. And it's really interesting. Fee points, pointed this out, and I thought it was absolutely fascinating. He says... Uh, Paul does not say one who speaks in a tongue should rather prophesy. He doesn't like get rid of tongues in a meeting. He instead says that tongues should be interpreted. So we aren't to avoid tongues in a meeting. We're going to get to some of the restrictions on tongues in, a, in the next teaching. Because um, there are, generally speaking, harsher restrictions on tongues than there are on prophecy and other utterances. And there's a, a reason for that, I believe. Um, but here, Paul doesn't, doesn't say, nope, no tongues, never, never do tongues, only do it in your private prayer life. He says that they should pray that they might interpret. 
might interpret their own tongue. So the people that want to speak in tongues in a meeting, they should interpret their own tongue. They should pray to do that. And the word pray here is the general word for prayer in the New Testament. And I just want to point out, there's nothing wrong with just reading it like it's written. There's no problem just reading it as pray. There's no problem, according to the Bible, seeking after prophecy, seeking after interpretation of tongues. There's no problem with it. We should be asking God to show himself more in our lives, to develop um, these manifestations, these gifts. Um, it's obviously on God's timetable. It's obviously on, on God's prerogative. But, but desiring interpretation of tongues is a great thing. Paul encourages it, and we should too. Um, and I, again, I think that that's the safer way of doing tongues in a meeting is to have the, own, the, the same person who speaks in tongues interpret their own tongue. Um, even though I think grammatically it's open, whether that's, uh, you know, the, w the way that they always did it in Corinth or the way that they always did it in the ancient church. Now we're going to go to verses 14 through 19. These are the last verses we're going to cover in this particular teaching. This is where we're going to cut um, 1 Corinthians 14 in half here. I'm going to read this as a block. Verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. So verse 14, there's some, I mean, absolutely amazing things here about speaking in tongues. Um, things that are nowhere else in the Bible that, that really explain things. I'm so thankful that they're here. I'm so thankful that they found their way into uh, into this discourse here that Paul is, is, is breathing out by the Spirit. I mean, the Spirit of God just working in him mightily. This whole, this whole time has been, has been amazing. But the stuff that he describes here is just fantastic. Verse 14 explains that the spiritual benefit to praying in tongues bypasses our brains. It bypasses our minds. Our mind is unfruitful. So the point is we can be spiritually edified without understanding what we're saying. That's amazing. That's super cool in my mind. And so Paul points out, I mean, in, 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 the, in his mind, I think this whole time there's been this dichotomy about what is going on in the meeting versus what's going on in the private prayer life. And what he's emphasizing is, is that tongues have a vibrant place in our private prayer life. They absolutely do uh, have a vibrant place in our private prayer life. Um, but then in the meeting, there are limitations to it. In the meeting, there are concerns about it. In the meeting, there are these restrictions that he recommends by the Spirit. And we're going to unpack that even more. But the point I'm trying to make here is, is that your spirit can be benefited even if your mind isn't, which is unbelievable. He points out that he uh, sings praises to God with his spirit and with his mind. So we should do both. We should pray in the Spirit. We should pray with understanding. We should pray. Um, we should sing in the Spirit, sing praises to God in the Spirit. We should sing praises to God with our mind. And when we do it with our mind, it's much more easy to do that in a meeting because it's intelligible, because it's community uh, beneficial, communally beneficial. 
Now, he can pray in tongues all he wants in his private prayer life. He can sing in tongues all he wants in his private prayer life. That seems to be the majority of what he's implying here. Um, another interesting note I want to point out here in this section is, is that the term pray with my spirit is another descriptor for speaking in tongues. And if you use that, you can find a couple of other places where speaking in tongues might get mentioned, even though tongues isn't specifically mentioned. Um, like Jude, for example, Jude, I think it's Jude 20. And uh, like some people view Romans 8, 26 as referring to tongues, although it's not 100% clear if that is. Um, so, um, or even like Ephesians 6, like praying all types of prayer that maybe tongues isn't included in that. Um, so, you know, there are these ways of sort of looking at Paul's language here and seeing possibly these other places where tongues may uh, make an appearance in the New Testament. And I, I'm hoping that I'll be able to teach just a regular teaching on just tongues and talk about everything that the Bible says about tongues um, in a later session. Um, but if I don't get to that immediately, uh, those are some verses that you could look at with the idea of praying with the Spirit. In verse 16, Paul begins by using a phrase similar to pray with the Spirit. He talks about giving thanks with your spirit. Giving thanks is another kind of prayer language. Um, and again, he's talking about uh, tongues in an assembly here. Uh, he's saying, you know, if, if you're giving thanks with your spirit, you're doing a good job of giving thanks, but no one can say amen. How can they say amen if they don't know what you're saying? Um, a couple interesting notes here in verse 16. The outsider is how it's translated in the ESV. The, the word is the word idiotes. And Fee points out that it likely refers to anyone in the assembly who does not understand the language being spoken. It's like someone who's uninitiated in that specific language is what he has in mind. Uh, idiotes uh, literally means unskilled or relatively inexperienced or like a layperson. And so in this particular context, Fee makes, a, I think, a pretty compelling argument that, it sh it, that this is anyone who uh, doesn't know the language, which is essentially going to be everyone, um, generally speaking, in a meeting. In verse 17, it calls speaking in tongues, giving thanks well. And yet, even though it's giving thanks well, if people can't understand what's being said, it isn't good for the assembly. And again, look at this prayer language that's being used for tongues. Every single time tongues gets mentioned, it's in prayer or praise. It's been prayer, praise, prayer, praise the whole time. In verses 18 and 19, Paul emphatically, he starts in verse 18 by emphatically thanking God that he speaks in tongues more than all of you. He um, but where does he do that? <laughs> where does he do this? He is just about to say that he'd rather speak five words with his mind than 10,000 words in a tongue in an assembly. Like he's literally going to contrast what he said in 18 with what he says in 19. So if 19 is talking about the assembly, then 18 has to be talking about his private prayer life. It has to be. He speaks in tongues much. He, pray, you know, he prays in the spirit. He gives thanks in the spirit. He sings in the spirit. He sings praise to God spiritually through, through singing in tongues. This all happens in his private prayer life. Why? Because 
That's what verse 19 says. In the church, he doesn't want to speak unintelligible language. He wants to speak intelligible language. And so here again, he is emphasizing the intelligible manifestations of the Spirit, like prophecy. He's saying, this is why these things are greater. These, this is why. So we cannot, we cannot come down on the cessationist side of this, which says, you know, we shouldn't speak in tongues at all. We shouldn't have charismatic evidences at all. That's not, what, that's not the argument he's presenting. He, we're also not saying that tongues has no place, because it has a limited place in the meeting, it has limited importance in our Christian lives. That's also not what we're saying. Paul says that he was glad he spoke in tongues more than any, any of them. So it must have been important to Paul that he spoke in tongues. Um, so I think, I think those are all really, really fascinating things uh, to think about. We can't be on either side, but we also can't be on the hyper-charismatic side and say, well, we're just going to speak in tongues in the meeting, even interpreted, and we're going to do that a ton. Paul's going to give us some guidance in the second part of the chapter here about how much we should be doing tongues with interpretation in a meeting. And it's going to be a lot less than prophecy. That's what his, that his recommendation through the Spirit is, to do it way less. Because, again, that period of time is unintelligible. It's only benefiting the one person. And Paul's goal is to have everyone edified, everyone as he said in verse 19, instructed. So another point I want to make about verse 18 is, is that verse 18 um, seems to be uh, indicating that, again, tongue seems to be something that almost everyone, everyone can do. Um, seems to be like a universal gift, as some people have called it. Uh, because it seems like a weird thing for him to say, I'm glad I speak in tongues more than all of you. It'd be weird if they couldn't do it. It'd be weird for him to say that. Um, just be an odd choice for him to just do that. So just to point that, point that out as well. So in the beginning, just sort of summing up what we've seen, in the beginning of chapter 14, Paul has laid out an extensive case comparing tongues with prophecy and other verbal gifts in the context of the meeting. While Paul strongly affirms the importance of tongues, especially in his private prayer life, he nonetheless teaches that tongues do not have a place in the assembly without interpretation. And we're going to see later in chapter 14, he's going to limit how much tongues appears in a meeting. And he's going to do that for the reasons we've already been seeing, I believe. Now, I want to just point out the end of this teaching, the things that we've seen about tongues just in chapter 14. Because again, you know, there is this question about well, when we do tongues with interpretation in a meeting, what should it sound like? And I've offered up a couple times without this extensive teaching that it should sound like an interpreted prayer or interpreted praise. And I just want to go through in first Corinthians, just what's in 1 Corinthians 14, because this is where all the details about tongues are given. Um, here's what it says. This is just literally what it says about speaking tongues. This is, every, you know, all the characteristics that we can pick up from 1 Corinthians 14. At least this is the list I came up with. Maybe you'll find a couple that I missed. It says speaking tongues is speaking to God, verse 2. Speaking in tongues builds up the, the individual, verse 4. This happens in the spirit bypassing the mind. It's unintelligible language, verse 9. It is something that we could pray to be able to interpret, verse 13. It is called praying in a tongue, verse 14. 
Uh, verse 14 says, mind is unfruitful, which is the same thing we saw you know, in verse 4. It builds up themselves in the spirit because the mind is unfruitful. That's sort of the end of that. Verse 15, it's called praying in the spirit. Verse 15, it's called singing praise with the spirit. Verse 16, it's called giving thanks with the spirit. Verse 17, it's called giving thanks well. So according to my count, that means it's called prayer or praise or speaking to God. One, two, three, four, five, six times, six times in 1 Corinthians 14, it's defined as prayer or praise or speaking to God. In Acts 2.11, it says that they were speaking in tongues and telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. They were praising God on the day of Pentecost. That's seven. Acts 10.46 says they were speaking in tongues and extolling God, praising God again. That's eight. That is eight verses... That's eight verses between 1 Corinthians 14 and the book of Acts that define tongues very specifically as prayer and praise to God. There are zero verses that suggest in any way, shape, or form that it is a message from God to people. So I don't, I don't know where that comes from other than a misunderstanding of verse 5 or a misunderstanding of verse 6. Um, but in the context of 1 Corinthians 14, that is swimming way upriver from the six things that it lays out very clearly uh, from my perspective. And again, I'm welcome to other thoughts on this. If there are verses or things that I'm missing on this, I don't, you know, I don't want to be found uh, wanting uh, in that way. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think the, the biblical picture here is pretty clear uh, that we're talking about talking to God. So, in, so speaking in tongues with interpretation should sound like an interpreted prayer. It should sound like an interpreted praise time to God. So the other point I want to make about that, not to, not to keep bearing this, I don't, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, whatever, beat up this belief so much, but I just want to point out that some people believe, some Pentecostals have believed this, and I think we were taught something similar, that there's this like public tongues and private tongues, that there's like this private prayer thing and then there's this public thing. The context in 1 Corinthians 14 has both in mind. He has his private prayer life in mind and he has the public setting in view. They're both there. And you can see that very clearly in verses 18 and 19. Very clearly that he has both in mind simultaneously. And Paul never says, well, when you're praying in tongues in your house, you're talking to God, but when you're in a meeting, it's a message from God. That's not what he says. That's not what he says. What he says in verse 5 is that when the, the, the person who's interpreting can make sure that the church is built up. That's what verse 5 says. Well, how can that be? How can that be? How can it be that someone who interprets a prayer, a divinely inspired prayer or prays to God, how would that edify people? How would that build people up? I would just encourage people to look at the Psalms. How many times do we see prayer or praise to God revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures in the Psalms? Uh, what about the epistles? There are prayers that are laid out for us in the epistles that are beautiful prayers. Some of the most beautiful things that God has ever revealed to man have come through prayers. The prayers of Jesus, remarkable prayers, incredibly uplifting, incredibly upbuilding. So, you know, I, I just, 
as we close this out, and again, we're going to talk more about how to practice tongues in, in a meeting in the next teaching, but just my, my final exhortation here is, is that I think, I think the Bible, especially in 1 Corinthians 14 here, where it talks about tongues, this is the only place in the Bible where it unpacks these things about tongues, and it talks about it as prayer and praise and directed to God. So when we interpret it, it should sound like that. And I know that's going to take time for us to sort all this out and figure out how that works practically. You know, I get it. I get, I, you know, I'm not saying people should turn on a dime and, you know, I'm not trying to mandate any of this stuff. I'm just saying from the, if we're trying to use the Bible as our guideposts, if we're trying to use the Bible as our source for what we believe about tongues, this is what it says. And so therefore our practice should follow that. And I think the other thing that we can take, the other practical takeaway that's really strong, and we're going to get into it even more in the next um, section here, is, is that I think the strong emphasis of our meeting should be prophecy, not tongues with interpretation. Because that is where the time is maximized for everyone present. Now we're going to unpack, I know everyone probably has on their mind right now, the sign to uh, unbelievers and the sign to believers and how to, how to take that and deal with that. So we will definitely deal with that in the next teaching. But just even before we get there, Paul is very positive towards seeking after prophecy, seeking after prophecy, seeking after prophecy, and tongues he's much more muted on in the meeting because of how intelligible or, or unintelligible it is and what it does for the meeting among believers. So just in the context of people who are um, instructed and understand what speaking in tongues is, even in that context, Paul elevates prophecy over tongues. And we should do that too. And as we investigate this next part of the chapter, we're going to see how that distinction gets actually amplified with unbelievers. So that's where we're heading next. We're heading next into the end of 1 Corinthians 14.